recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 47 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we're also on YouTube and SoundCloud, and you can get our newsletter, too, at prlawpodcast.com club. So Ewan, here we are. Lots happening in Hong Kong. What's happening over there in, uh, in, in Canada? Daylight savings, Cam. Daylight savings. Right on. That's a big deal. So you, you, you lost an hour of sleep, right? I, I, I did. And yet I gained an hour of sleep at the same time, Cam. And let me, let me explain. Yeah, please because, do. <laughs> you know, I was out for a lovely walk. It was a beautiful sunny afternoon. And I came back and uh, I, like, I should start cooking dinner. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put my head down for five minutes. And uh, I woke up an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> and ordinarily, that wouldn't have been an issue. But of course, we lost an hour because the clock sprung ahead. And um, I, I, I was kind of behind the eight ball and had to sort of scramble to get dinner together yeah. on time. But man, man, you know, there's really, as you get older, and this is definitely like times where I feel like an old man, but um, where there are few things better in life than being able to squeeze in a nap on the weekend. I don't know about you, but it, it's it's just a glorious thing when you, yeah. when you get to have one. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I did that this weekend. I actually had to wake up early on Saturday to give a, uh, a lecture at uh, Poly University, Hong Kong Polytechnic University here on communications. I did one about 18 months ago. Um, and I was sort of a guest lecturer for a communications class. But to do so, yeah, I had to wake up early. It was over Zoom um, because, you know, schools are not in session that way yet. But yeah, I mean, because I was up early and it was a Saturday and it was a three and a half hour, four hour class, which is a long time to talk. Yeah, when it ended, I had lunch and then I thought, I'm tired. I'm going to lay down. <laughs> and um, it was, yeah, it was wonderful. Like, I absolutely loved it. I, w- I wish I could do it every day, actually. <laughs> Yes. Yes. The daily nap would be incredible if such a thing was possible. Yeah. Well, here things are getting uh, tough again, especially on the COVID side, Ewan, because, uh, you know, I, I think I've said on this show a few times that we had basically no cases again for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, and then, you know, suddenly one guy who had it went to a gym in central Hong Kong, actually, Sainquin, to be more direct, which has resulted in more than 100 cases from this one sort of super spreader event. And um, because, you know, like there's trainers that go from gym to gym and help people out. And so it just spread like crazy. And um, even in mid-levels now, which is where I live, you know, there's four buildings here now that are under complete lockdown. There's no people coming or going. Um, So it's right in my neighborhood uh, now, which is uh, it's different. Again, it just went from nothing to many cases again. Um, and, and another example of like, you can get this virus under control, but the minute you really open things up, it can come back so quickly. Yeah. Um, although I was just thinking for 
the majority of our listeners who don't live in Hong Kong, you might have to explain what you mean when you say mid-levels. Yeah, okay, mid-levels. It's sort of partway up the mountain. So it, it's like there is a lower area and then a mid-levels, which is partway up and then the peak, which is the top and very ritzy up there. Um, but it is around central. And there's a lot of expatriates and stuff like that in this area. Um, so it's uh, this time it's sort of a lot of the banker crowd, people like that have have are dealing with with COVID now for the first time. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a scary time. And this goes hand in hand with electoral reform in Hong Kong, which is a very boring subject, I'm sure, to most of our readers. But suffice to say, Beijing has basically removed any possibility of a pro-democracy candidate from uh, winning election. So, uh, yeah, we are firmly in Beijing's control. No doubt about that. Yeah, I, uh, I I read about that. It made news here. I, I hey man, I'm I'm sorry. I don't really know what else to say because what can be done, right? Exactly. At this point, that. Yep. Yep. And you know, this is a good. I always tell people this. Just in, I think I even said this in my class on Saturday. Like there are things you can control and influence, and things you cannot. And for the things you cannot, just no sense in really even thinking about it. It's a very, it's some people think that's kind of a defeatist attitude, but if you really have no power, no control or no influence, then you should kind of channel your energy into, into other areas. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR law podcast. All one word P R L A W podcast. Send us your questions now by email to ask us at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Take it away, Ewan. All right, Cameron. Well, you know, last week we were talking about things that employees and employers, for that matter, need to look out for in employment agreements, right? Mm -hmm. They're looking at an agreement, thinking about starting a new job, and too many employees, as we've discussed, they just sign off on the dotted line and they don't really do their due diligence in terms of going through the agreement or having right. somebody look at it. So, you know, last week we really focused on that idea of the termination clause really being critically important in terms of examining what are your entitlements? What do you get if uh, the employer lets you go or severs the employment relationship? What are your entitlements and how it's critically important that you try and negotiate that provision as an employee, have somebody explain it to you. And if you're an employer, make sure it's drafted in a manner that is going to be enforceable should it ever get in front of the eyes of a, of a judge in the court. So what does that mean, um, though? Can I stop you for a second? What does enforceable yeah. mean in this case? Well, I mean, so generally speaking, enforceability revolves around the idea of is the language consistent with the statutory provisions in the common law? So you can't draft language in an agreement that is inconsistent with a particular statutory provision or with case law. Okay, right? so that would mean be, like it has to be consistent. So, for example, you couldn't contract somebody to work 22 hours a day kind of thing because there's laws well, around this. Yeah, it, it, that, that's exactly it, right? So the, the fundamental premise is it doesn't matter if, if you're an employee and somebody tries to get you to sign an agreement where you would effectively be contracting out of your entitlements under a particular law, then that contract by definition is unenforceable. It has to be consistent with the laws of the land, regardless of what it is that you're contracting for, right? right? That's the general yeah. idea. Got it. Um, but this week, Cam, I wanted to talk about some of the other provisions 
that frequently come up. Um, one, the first one I wanted to talk about has become a much bigger issue post COVID. And that is the temporary layoff clause. So this was something we didn't really see all that much of in a pre pandemic world. Mm -hmm. Typically, you know, the only sort of employment agreements where you'd see temporary layoff provisions were seasonal workers was the, you know, sort of the big, the big one where, you know, you have employees who are only working certain months of the year and, you know, the employer obviously cannot keep them on payroll uh, the entire 12 months of the year. So they, they sort of build a clause into the agreement where it's understood between the parties that during off seasons, they'll be temporarily laid off and then they'll come back when, when the work returns. Um, factory work, you often see these kinds of provisions as well. Well, in a post-COVID world, we're starting to see a lot more of these in agreements where employers, quite quite rightly, are trying to protect themselves against you know a, a further wave of the pandemic or another pandemic. I mean, again, and this is the sort of stuff that employers hadn't really turned their minds to because we've never really had to turn our minds to it. Um, but they're certainly conscious of it now, and they're starting to insert a lot of language and provisions that gives them the discretion to temporarily lay an employee off um, should they need to do so. Now, you said that, um, you know, it's sort of natural now that employers are turning their attention to this because of what has happened with COVID and likely to happen again. Actually, I've heard recently several times that, um, you know, another pandemic is coming and maybe not too long either, uh, just the way the kind of world world's going. But is this good for employees? Because I feel like this is another, at the very beginning of this process, we talked about how employers can kind of lay people off now and blame it on the pandemic, even if it's not because of the pandemic, even if it's because they just wanted to let a particular person go and they, they kind of had an excuse it kind of legitimized it to some degree. And do you think that this is kind of along those same lines? I feel like it's easy for employers now to point to the pandemic and say, look, this kind of thing happened. So now we need to have some clauses written in here where we can just, you know, temporarily lay you off and make it easier to do so. Is it good for employees? Um, well, no, I, I don't see why, I don't see how it could ever possibly be good for an employee mm -hmm. to have the, you know, give the, give the discretion to the employer to temporarily lay you off. But I mean, going more specifically to, to your question, Cam, I mean, I, I think the larger issue isn't so much that we're seeing temporary layoff clause that contemplate, hey, if we find ourselves in a pandemic situation again somewhere down the road or there's a further wave that under that narrow scope, we have the discretion to temporarily lay you off. What you know, what I'm seeing more frequently is a really broad provision where effectively the employer has sole discretion to temporarily lay an employee off you know, regardless of what the situation is, you know, simply on the basis of shortage of work. Well, shortage of work, meaning what? And de as determined by who and mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. upon what what factors or, you know, what drop in production or profits or whatever measure of um, of of work the employer is relying on. I mean, unless you're narrowing the scope of that language, it gives an employer a great deal of discretion. Now, if you're drafting an agreement like that for an employer, then obviously, you know, you as an employer want to have as much latitude as you possibly can. Um, and you want that provision to read as broadly as possible. But of course, if you're on the other side of the, of the fence as an employee, then you want to do everything you can 
to either get it eliminated to begin with in its entirety, or if it's going to be there, at least ensure that the scope is very, very narrowly focused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's completely understandable. That's their their interest, right, on both sides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but I mean, again, this just sort of goes back to that fundamental issue, much like the termination clause, much like everything else, sit down with someone who looks at agreements on a regular basis and make sure you're reviewing it or look at it yourself and at least, you know, have some sense as to whether or not you have any language in your agreement. And if you do, well, you know, then the next step obviously is to take it to somebody who understands um, what language should be there, what shouldn't be there and how you can possibly revise it. But, you know, you have to look at the agreement and, and see if you have some sort of contemplated layoff provisions. Um, yeah. Because, we're starting to see more and more of them, Cam, and it, it really, I think, you know, this is going to be a big deal going forward. Yeah, and, um, you know, you just said sit down with a lawyer or read it yourself, and um, actually, I think the read it yourself part is is really is really important, too. I mean, a lot of people do assume, and we, we touched on this previously, that, you know, if they're being recruited or they're being considered for a role and then hired for a role, there's a lot of positive vibes around that, sort of like getting married. Um, and so you, you assume that they're going to have sort of your best interests at heart to some degree. I think a lot of people do think that way. And because it's the beginning of this relationship, right? So both sides are feeling pretty good. But the employer side is always going to cover their bases for sure. And it, it is incumbent upon the the person signing that contract to at least review it. And even if legalese bores you or if this seems like a huge chore, it's worth your time to go through it. It is your employment after all. And it can touch on every factor of your life. Um, and so it, it is worth going through or hiring somebody to, to, to go through. Let me be clear. When I say read it yourself, I'm not saying that because I, you know, I would not suggest that, Oh, I've read this myself. I'm sure everything's fine. No. What I'm saying is that these are specific provisions that you want to look for. And if you see something in your agreement that says temporary layoff provision or anything with that combination of words in a given sentence, that should be, you know, the red light going off in your mind of, you know what, I should really sit down with somebody and go through this and make sure I know what it is that I'm signing. Uh, You know, that really has to be the next step. So you and you said you're seeing more of this, right? Like this is going to be uh, a trend that is probably going to pick up steam. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, and, and here's the thing. I mean, if an, as an employer, you can include a temporary layoff provision and effectively know that the the individual that you're giving the agreement to isn't going to push back on it, then why wouldn't you give yourself that additional discretion? Why wouldn't you protect your business in, in that regard, right? So, I mean, really, there's no reason not to do it um, as an employer unless you're going to get a certain level of pushback from the employee. And then we get into sort of that position that we were talking about last week around termination clauses um, of how much negotiating power do you have as an employee in this situation? You know, maybe that's a deal breaker for you. Maybe you're prepared to say, you know what, I'm not going to take this job unless you remove that particular clause. And then the employer has to make a decision in terms of how much they really want that particular employee for that particular role. Right on. Okay. Anything else to add on this one, Ewan, or any other pieces of, uh, of wisdom that you would like to impart? (laughs) No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I did want to sort of quickly touch upon 
one other thing that's that's coming up, Cam, and this is sort of relevant to remote work, and that's governing jurisdiction of the agreement. I know you and I have talked about this before. It's a really complicated issue, and you know, it's not something, unfortunately, that we can give really, really clear counsel on other than, again, this is something that you need to sit down with counsel locally to discuss. Because with all of the remote work that we're having, we're starting to see now, Cam, agreements where you have an employee who lives in, I don't know, Ontario, for example, that's signing an agreement with a company that's based in, say, British Columbia or maybe California. And you go through the agreement and you realize that there's a provision in the agreement that says that that individual will be bound by the laws of British Columbia, for example, despite the fact that they work in Ontario. Well, you know, as an employer, you may want to hold that individual to the jurisdictional law of that particular province, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the jurisdiction that's going to govern. So if you have an employee in Ontario, for example, and they they live in Ontario, they're working in Ontario, they're paying Ontario taxes. Um, maybe there's, you know, a, a sort of satellite office of the company that's based in Toronto, for example. So, you know, maybe once a week they're going to that satellite office in Toronto. And despite the fact that the company's headquartered in BC and you've signed an agreement under BC law, you're likely bound by the laws of Ontario and not the laws of BC. Um, so this is really, really something that employees working abroad um, need to look into because just because you're signing an agreement that says you'll be bound by the law of a particular country or a particular province, that's not necessarily the law that's going to govern. You need to sit down with counsel locally and have a determination as to wh- what, what law am I bound by? by? Because obviously that's going to have all kinds of significance, again, in terms of your entitlements upon termination, the enforceability of certain provisions in the agreement, um, all of this stuff. And this, again, Cam, this is going to be another huge, huge, huge issue going forward with so many people working remotely. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan, I wanted to um, talk uh, today about companies and making uh, very public mistakes that land them in some hot water. And it pertains to Burger King this week. But before I, I mention that, actually, Amazon ran into a similar problem. So let me start at the beginning here. Amazon released a new logo for its phone app in January, I believe. Uh, sorry, no, it was in February, and it was corrected on March 1st. So in uh, in February, it was a logo that had the sort of Amazon smile, the sort of A to Z part of the logo, um, and then a um, sort of a uh, some tape, like it's sealed like a box over the top, but it had what many people felt uh, looked like a Hitler mustache, the way that this sort of seal was put on this box with the smile. It's hard to describe. I will put a, a link in the show notes. Um, I didn't notice that right away. <laughs> I can see how people would, though, um, you know, based on having a look at it. And this was embarrassing for Amazon. Um, and they changed it pretty quickly 
uh, to, to a different sort of piece of tape for that box that removed any, any confusion. And so they ran into some, some trouble with that. And this was clearly inadvertent, or I assume it was inadvertent. I don't think Amazon was trying to, trying to replicate Hitler on its, on its, uh, on its app icon. Burger King though, kind of went into this, uh, on purpose. And you and I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but you know, Burger King put out, uh, kind of an, ad or a, a promotion on International Women's Day. Now, International Women's Day was last Monday, and um, it's a big deal. Like, I, I remember when I moved to Asia and China in particular, um, even in the in the mid-2000s, uh, it was a, a major day. So is Kids' Day, Children's Day. Both of these days in China are really, really big. And so International Women's Day rolled around on Monday, as usual. Um, and Burger King put out a tweet uh, to mark the occasion. Uh, and it contained just five words. Uh, but those five words caused quite an uproar. Burger King then put out a second tweet right afterwards, um, which helped to explain the first tweet. So what on earth am I talking about? I'm actually going to turn it over to Bill Maher, who's a U.S. late night talk show host on HBO. Uh, and he addressed this scandal and explains it uh, on his show from Friday. Burger King was trying to be funny in an ad, and I think they were funny. They were talking about a program they have to increase the number of women chefs. There aren't a comparative number of women chefs in the world. Maybe they should get more opportunities. Maybe there's a reason why they don't, and we should address that. That's what they were trying to say. Right. So they had an ad, women belong in the kitchen. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't see it. And, of course... You know, the shit hit the fan, the usual suspects. And I just want to say, this, this is what's wrong with us. It's like, if you don't get the joke here, mm -hmm. then you're stupid. Mm -hmm. You don't get subtlety, you don't get humor, mm -hmm. you don't get perspective. And, and if you do, and you're pretending that you don't, just so you can have something to be pissed off at, then you're, both ways you're gross. All right, Ewan, uh, what did you think when you heard about this? When I heard Mars comment or when I heard the initial, uh, the, the, yeah, I mean, I, I saw it, Cam. Look, I get it. I get, I get Mars point, but I also don't, I don't think that because you can, you look at the ad critically, that that doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. I don't think it means you're being overly sensitive. Burger King was clearly looking to get people's attention. They were clearly looking to incite some level of controversy around the particular phrasing. Um, and look, I mean, they're, they're right. I mean, as you know, in a previous life cam, I worked in kitchens and it is, it, I mean, it, it's exactly what you think it is. It's a particularly gendered environment. It is not an environment that historically has been inclusive or, um, something that a comfortable space for women to move into. That's clearly what Burger King was touching on. But why? But I mean, again, why? I mean, on International Women's Day, why did that have to be the position? It, it, you could have gone so many other ways. Why was that the direction that they went? I just I don't I don't get it. And I think, you know, I think Mar is off base. I get it. I, he's trying to conflate too many issues. He's saying that if you find this 
inappropriate or marginally offensive, then you don't have a sense of humor or you're some sort of woke social justice warriors, you know, kind of common parlance that I know he likes to use. I don't think it means that at all. I think you can look at it and say, no, that was a really stupid advertising campaign to drop on International Women's Day. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything more than that. So I, I just want to push back on one thing that you said there. You said they were clearly trying to incite controversy, and I really don't think that's the case. I do think that Burger King was trying to get attention, but I don't think they were trying to incite controversy. And those are two very different things. There's a fine line between them. Um, I, I do think companies try and avoid controversy as much as possible. They're just wired that way. But you do want to do something creative to get attention. Um, and sometimes those two things come together, and, and I think – PR agencies or comms teams would not want them to come together. They'd want to split them into two. Um, so I, I, I don't think they were actually trying to create this kind of controversy out of it. But I do think they were trying to be talked about, which is a little bit different. So I, I want to address this. And now the reason I chose this is because there's a message in here that applies to almost everything out of communications. And there's, there's two parts to this issue to me. There's two main sort of sides to it, two main factors here. One, the appropriateness of the joke to the risk of the joke. So I mean, people think these are the same thing, but they're, they're not. Like in terms of the appropriateness of the joke, it actually, it doesn't matter ultimately if you think it's appropriate or not. And this is where sort of Bill Maher was going with it. It's completely beside the point because should people be angry about the tweet? In my view, I would say no. I think the tweet was sent out to shock people and get attention. And then it was followed by details of a program aimed at bringing more women into the workforce. So that second tweet, and this is exactly what it said. So the first tweet said, women belong in the kitchen. The second tweet said, if they want to, of course, yet only 20% of chefs are women. We're on a mission to change the gender ratio in the restaurant industry by empowering female employees with the opportunity to pursue a culinary career. So if you take the original tweet, devoid of any context, it's awful. But if you take the initial tweet and put it in the context of the second tweet, which it was, then it makes much more sense, and it was clear, and it was fine. So, I mean, that's my view in terms of the appropriateness. However, as I said, that part doesn't matter ultimately because point number two is the risk and it doesn't matter whether it's appropriate or not because someone in Burger King felt that it was obviously and maybe more people felt that it was not just one um, and it was a mistake um, and whoever approved it probably wants to do a do-over um, and there needs to be this risk analysis before a campaign goes out like this or before you tweet something like this because we all know we're in a charged political environment. We're still going through Me Too to some degree. You know, we've seen the U.S. in particular split badly with both halves kind of moving further away from each other. And so there's a lot of risk in putting something like this out. And I think a proper analysis of this would have shown that, you know, regardless of whether it should be okay or it should be understood or it should be uh, taken in context, that it probably wouldn't be. And so... That's kind of the, the, the issue with me. And I, I want to go back to, to Mars' show here for a second. He had both comedian Larry Wilmore and Professor Scott Galloway on the show. And they both take different sides of this discussion. Uh, Larry Wilmore uh, speaks first. Bill, I'm going to have to call a foul on that play. 
I don't think this is a joke that's as good as you're saying that it is. You know? No, um, it's an ad. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's not a monologue joke. My, my colleague. No, 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 I know what you mean, but... I mean, I hadn't seen that. If I just saw that, I'm like, what the fuck is Burger King doing? But, <laughs> yeah. but then you would read it. That's the point. It yes, got I your attention. I, right? That's what advertising My colleague is. at NYU, I yes. think, has the right take on this, and that it, gestures should be taken with the intent that they're given. And this was meant right. to highlight yeah. sexism. Exactly. And unfortunately, what we have, and my industry is guilty of this, we've created an industrial shaming culture where there's money in dunking on people and saying, making a caricature of comments and then using that to extract to an ugly place so you can get virtue points. Because right. the moment you're offended on our country, it means you're right. And where we have right. failed at universities is we need to be graduating, not wokesters, but warriors. You know, Ewan, I think, you know, Wilmore's reaction was probably the more common one out there because he chuckled, you know, when, when Mar read the tweet, he chuckled and he wondered what Burger King was thinking. So he he judged it right away, just based on that first tweet. And he was already, you know, in judgment land before he could even think about or hear the second one. And, you know, I would say that that is unfortunate. I would like people to take things in context rather than out of context. But that's wishful thinking. <laughs> you know, even if I would like that to happen, it's not going to happen. And so, I, you know, I wanted to point this out, you, and I'm going to give you a chance to, to chime in here in a sec. I wanted to point this out because in PR, I think we're often criticized for being too careful or trying to keep things safe or for not taking risks or, you know, trying to shy away from controversy or attention. And this bothers people sometimes either in-house or even in terms of clients where sometimes PR people see risk or see a potential problem where other people don't see those problems. And I think this is such a good example of that, that, you know, number one, yes, people should be able to understand nuance and intent. Number two, this should not have been a big deal. Number three, Burger King should never have posted that uh, because people don't get those things. Uh, and I really think that's kind of the clearest way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I saw the segment, actually, that Mars segment that you're you're talking about. And, um, you know, I, I like Scott Galloway. I'm actually going to talk about a little bit later in the show. I'm going to talk about a fantastic article that I read of his. Um, and I, I get I even get his argument. But first of all, let's let's step back and talk about the fact that we have three men talking about why this may or may not have um, angered um, women or men or anybody else. We, we don't exactly have a, uh, a particularly diverse pool of individuals, um, breaking, breaking down the issues here. That's sort of the first point. And then the no, second actually, point I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in there. I don't think that matters. I, are you telling me that like, it, how does that affect Burger King though? Like they shouldn't have done it regardless. I mean, if, if there's a bunch of men that speak up against it, um, that's still a problem, right? I don't think Burger King is sort of segmenting its audience in terms of, you know, men may feel this way, women may feel this way. I mean, no, it was, no, no, it was that, a, that's not, it was that's a not what I'm saying at all. Decision. All, I, all I'm saying yeah. is that in that particular clip that you played, we're getting a very, a very specific and very particular perspective on the issue and on the ad itself. So my, my, my point is, is I don't necessarily deem that to be conclusive of, of anything. Um, See, I do, because even if women were perfectly fine, if there was a woman on that show who said this, this ad was fine for me, I still would say it's not fine because it's, it affects more than just women when something like this is tweeted out. Um, 
I, you know, it, it doesn't matter if anyone gets upset. If your brand is sort of dragged through the mud for this, that can be a perspective of a male or a female or someone who is black or white or Asian. It doesn't matter. It's it's damaging to the brand regardless. So to me, the fact that, that, that three men sitting there said they didn't like it or, or one of them said he didn't like it and two liked it. You know, it, to me, it just it, it doesn't matter. It still it still should have been tweeted regardless. No, no, and I, I I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't disagree with the latter part of your point. I'm just all I'm saying is it would have been nice if in that particular segment we had a more diverse um, perspective on the on the issue. That's all that I'm saying. Um, but here's the other thing that I find really interesting about this is because you provided the additional context of the second tweet. Right. And you're right. The second tweet does provide some vital context to the initial tweet. Well, why why was the first tweet then sent out separately? Why couldn't you have done it the other way? Burger King very easily could have sent out, for example, the second tweet first, which provides the context and then closed with the line women belong in the kitchen within the context that they have rightly established as something that's actually progressive and supportive of women. But they chose not to do that. They chose not to do that, presumably for the very clear reason that they knew full well that sending out the first tweet was going to get more attention. And if they had sent the second tweet out first, it likely that that message at the end likely would have got lost in the mix. But that really, to me, seems like a readily easy way that they could have addressed the issue, resolved the issue, um, and put forward the message that they ultimately wanted to put forward. I think if you put women belong in the kitchen, even at the end of the tweet, that's going to get a lot of attention. I don't think that would get lost in there. Um, That is going to be picked out for sure. And I actually generally agree with your point, though. I, I, I don't think I would have put it at the end, but I would have put these two tweets together, at least, into one. Um, you can say it off the top, even, at, followed by the rest of the, the material all within one tweet, because then it has to be taken in context. When you tweet it by itself, yeah, it, it, it does pull it away from the rest of the context to some degree. And, and look, like I, for me, I get so angry just in general about context being lost when people are angry about this or that, or quotes are always pulled out of context for people. And when, when, when they're trying to make points and things like that, and it drives me crazy because to me, it feels so dishonest. Like a lot of the times I feel like people do know the context, but they're pulling things out of context because they want to make a point. And it's, it's, it's challenging. I think it's wrong, but it's the environment that we live in. And so I mean, that's why I say, like, personally speaking, I don't think this should have been an issue per se, but it is an issue. And I, yeah, it was a huge mistake for Burger King to do this. Um, and it's, it's hurt the brand. And yeah, I mean, they did get a lot of attention. I know they were trying to get attention, but there are ways, as you said just now, Ewan, to do this in a way that still gets some attention, but still just makes you seem a little bit more, I don't know. I don't want to use woke, but just a little more responsible in terms of how you communicate these sorts of things. Um, And I think, you know, Amazon made it switch very quickly and quietly. It was inadvertent. Burger King did this on purpose. And so this was a kind of lapse, kind of a shocking lapse in judgment, I think, from either the company's uh, marketing team or, or their PR agency, more likely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, presumably they sat in a room and had the discussion that we're having right now. And someone said, no, no, no. I mean, inevitably, this was the conclusion, right? Someone said, no, 
Um, I think the best way to go is to send out this first tweet and then we'll follow up with the second one. Um, that was what someone decided was the best way to go. It also begs the question, Cam, and I mean, perhaps you know this, I don't. Um, how quickly was the second tweet sent out? It was right away. I'm, yeah. They so, came so there wasn't together. like there was a delay of a couple minutes where they're sort of trying to quickly comb the interwebs to get an immediate sense as to what the reaction was before pushing out the second. No, one. no, no. Okay. But I think you are right. I think that is probably how it happened. And, and I can hear people saying this. I think that point of view of, yeah, we're saying something uh, outrageous, but it's in context of something really good that we're doing. And I, and I can see people sitting around the table going, yeah, yeah, that's true. No, this is actually a good, you know, this is a good program to bring more, more, more females into, into culinary careers. But um, yeah, it just wasn't, just wasn't done very well wait a minute wait a minute check this out whoa hey check this out no no wait wait check it out check it out i want you to check this out on the pr and law podcast all right ewan you said you've got some scott galloway stuff yeah (laughs) yes yes um scott galloway he he did a great piece for for the economist this may be paywall depending on how many you know free economist articles you've read this month um but it it's fantastic it's such a it's such a great read it's on recasting american individualism and institutions and scott galloway cam to give a little more context because we've now talked about him a little bit um he's a professor at new york university's stern school of business He's also the host of the the Prof G and uh, Pivot podcasts, mm-hmm. um, and his most recent book is called Post Corona: From Crisis to Opportunity, which I'm I'm going to go and pick up a copy of now after reading this article. Uh, so many great quotes in here, Cam. But I mean, really, to sum it up, Galloway's arguing that the emphasis placed on America's sort of rugged individualism um, that rose in in the Reagan era. And was sort of captured, Cam, in that that famous, if you remember Reagan's famous declaration, he said, uh, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Mm-hmm. Right? And Galloway sort of argues that this was the beginning of a 40-year a assault on public sector institutions that were sort of carried out under, you know, the banner of liberty and supposed self-reliance. And it's it's resulted in the gradual erosion of the very institutions that once made America exceptional. Um, And again, he just, he pulls out just some really, really crazy, crazy stats in this. So, I mean, you know, one of the ones he pulls out that I wanted to mention, Cam, is American children born in 1940. They had a 92% chance of making more money than their parents by age 30. Only half of Americans born in 1984 achieve this. And he talks about his own anecdotal experience as well. So he says, you know, despite being an unremarkable sort of lower middle class kid, that between the 1970s and the 1990s, because of of California's public education system, he was able to attend primary school, university, and business school for a total of $10,000. You know, and obviously finishing with with solid credentials and, and a network to go out and become successful. And, you know, he's, he, he then goes on to sort of lead this into COVID and the idea that, 
when COVID hit the U.S., it didn't find the sort of exceptional country that a lot of people still held it up to be. Instead, it sort of found a land, and, and this is a direct quote, instead it found a land of individuals, too many of them poor, overweight, undereducated, and overly imprisoned. It found underfunded institutions and a population teeming with a sense of entitlement rather than community. It's a it's a crazy read, Cam. One of the one of the best articles I've read in a while. Um, and this is definitely an issue that has just really stripped the United States of that idea of exceptionalism that it was that high, high standard that it was once held to. Yeah, and far be it for me to sort of argue with Scott Galloway, obviously. Um, I think I, I quite like him as well. I think, you know, you mentioned the the 95% chance of earning more than your parents if you're born in 1930 versus the, the 80s. I think there's some context missing there too, though. I think if you're born in the 30s, it means you're coming of age in the post-war period where there was a huge... Well, it was the 40s. It was born in, yeah, born in 1940, had a 92% chance. Right. So, huge, uh, huge post-war economic boom. So that seems to make sense. It's hard to say that's because of the institutions at the time. Um, There was just a massive, massive expansion uh, economically at that time. And for the rest of it, I mean, I, I, I was actually thinking something similar, uh, even recently, just this, this belief that government is bad um, and, and it's wasteful and, you know, this, this, these thoughts really permeate uh, a lot of discourse in the United States. And, uh, you know, yeah, where did that come from? What, you know, wh- wh- why do people feel this way? And yeah, it tends to go back to, to Reagan and those five words that you mentioned. And those are really deeply ingrained um, in a lot of people. And as for the, the COVID thing, I mean, the only thing I'll say there is I, I was fully on board with everything you just said, except for the fact that since Joe Biden has been in, in the White House, things have turned around quite quickly. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of uh, vaccinations happening. America, I think, is leading the world at this point um, in terms of speed of vaccinations. Um, and a lot of those vaccines were, were developed by U.S. companies. So there is a there is a other side to it where things have kind of turned around a little bit when there's some competent people around. Um, but I think his larger point uh, still stands, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, I think they've, they've turned things around or turning things around. I think, yeah, I think next to Israel, I think Israel's has had, had the fastest vaccine rollout of any country in the world. But I think after that, yeah, they, they, you know, they've done a good job. Um, but at least from when it, when it, when it arrived, right. When it arrived in the U S that, that idea of, and we've seen this in terms of, you know, all the ridiculous examples. And it's not like the United States, um, owns a monopoly on this. I mean, we've seen this in Canada and we've seen this in a number of number of other countries as well, but even the, you know, the anti-maskers that we've talked about on the show before cam, you know, the idea that you can't tell me what to do, right? I'm, I'm my own, I am an Island and you cannot tell me what to do, but that's really not how it, how it works because those individuals, they then get into their car, they then drive on the roads that are, are, you know, provided for by the state um, they go and, and shop at markets where they're purchasing food that are, that, that is safe because it's been regulated by the state. <laughs> I mean, all of these, all of this state apparatus that is involved in their lives on a day-to-day basis, um, that really you cannot separate from, from yourself in the state. It is all part and parcel of the same thing. And to suggest that, you know, you are this Island unto yourself, 
um, and that you don't exist or coexist in this larger context um, of pre-existing institutions that enabled you to to sort of enjoy that quality of life. It's it's just it's completely naive, and something has somehow been lost in the rhetoric that those institutions are what have given us that quality of life rather than what is taking them away. I think like even on the anti-mask thing, I, I think a, a general mask law was struck down in one of the states just because it is to, to tell people they have to wear something indoors in all cases is kind of I like I can see why there's a bit of pushback there but I think to to sort of illustrate your point a bit I mean forget the fact that roads may have been you know, financed by by public funds or something like that it's just that you you have to wear a seat belt for instance or you have to um you know get get insurance or you have to you know these kinds of things which are compelled behavior under the law or no shirt, no shoes, no service, you know, going into restaurants. I mean, these, these there have been restrictions like this around for a long time. And, and this is just uh, the latest manifestation of it. Yet people accept all those other ones, just not this one. So it makes me think it's a little more political. I, I'm not going to go on on mine. You and I finally saw Nomadland. Uh, I don't know if you have seen that or heard about no. it, but Chloe, Chloe, uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, the first... A woman of Asian descent to win a Golden Globe for directing. Um, it's a fantastic film. Absolutely fantastic film. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's touching. It's emotional. But yet it's also very in tune with the times and sort of what it's like living in kind of the world that you were just talking about, Ewan, of this sort of so-called rugged individualism that's leaving some people behind. Um, and it's uh, absolutely an excellent film. And she very well could win an Oscar for it. Uh, so I just wanted to mention mention that. Fantastic. Okay, I'll check that out. Yeah, I can't remember which streaming service it's on. I think it might be Netflix. Actually, we've got Hulu here now, so which we've been using a lot recently. But anyway, go have a look for it. It is on one of the streaming services, so go 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 find it. Uh, it's definitely worth it. Cool. Okay, I will. Anything else you want to mention, Ewan, before we wrap this up? No. No, good show, Cam. Good, good show. show. Yeah. Some some healthy some healthy debate. Healthy I discussion. like that. That's good. Yeah, no kidding. Soon we're gonna call it it's uh, the Crossfire Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. Don't miss the show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels, which are being updated. You can follow us on social media as well. Uh, and our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 